I have a question for these kiddos. Do y'all know what this is? Have you ever you've seen one of these? Okay, well, I call this a can opener. Is that what y'all call this? Yes. I can't think of another name for it. It is what it is. You know, it's really descriptive. And this is not my personal one, um, as if I have, like, this Brad's can opener. Do not touch. <laughs> I don't. This is the one that belongs to the church, though, and it was in the, in the cabinet in here. And I forgot to bring ours from our house. But, but I bet I, I, we've been married 10 years, and I know we haven't had 10 can openers. But we've had more than three, maybe five can openers in the time we've been married. And, and the reason that's important, and the reason I was thinking about this this week, is because this is a single-use device. I mean, it's got one particular purpose. It's highly specialized. When they're new, they are great at their job. They have clean gears and sharp blades, and you pop it onto the top of a can of green beans, and it's easy. You can open the can of green beans quickly, without any fuss, and you're eating your green beans like that. But over time, these things deteriorate, and they stop opening cans, which raises the question, can you still call it a can opener if it no longer opens cans? <laughs> Have y'all heard that before? That's one of these common dad questions that we often ask our kids. What do you call it if it can't open cans? It's a can opener. A can opener that can't open cans is useless. There's nothing else to do with it besides throw it away in the garbage. Uh, you could take this idea of a can opener that can't open cans and you could state it philosophically. Uh, one might say this, the essence of the can opener is its ability to open cans, such that an inability to open cans calls into question its whole existence. Why even keep this thing around? It's useless for what it does. It's no longer a can opener, it's garbage. This one I wanna consider with you why I would spend that much time thinking about something as silly as this, and maybe I'll let it just sit here so you can continue to ponder it, because it raises an important point for us as we begin this new book, the book of Jonah. What do you call a can opener that can't open cans? And what do you call a prophet who won't proclaim God's word? What do you call a people who won't live out their identity as God's treasured possession? What do, you, what do you call that? What do you do with that? It's a contradiction in terms. And so this morning, as we open up God's Word and we look at the book of Jonah, I want you to keep that in mind, that a can opener is only a can opener if it continues to open cans. And I would suggest to you that obedience to Christ functions much the same way in the lives of Christians. Obedience to Jesus is the evidence of saving faith and the essence of the Christian life. I want to prove that to you. So if you got your copy of God's Word, which is perfect and precious, would you open it to chapter 1 of the book of Jonah? We're going to look at three verses today and kind of set the stage for the next month of sermons as we work our way through this wonderful book and dig in. I'm calling this sermon, A Reluctant Prophet and the Obedience of Faith. So you all in Jonah chapter 1 yet? All right, well, let's read it then. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. This is what God's Word says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa 
found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, we are only going to deal with these first three verses today because the rest of chapter 1 gets wild and crazy, and we're going to get after it next week. But you know the story of Jonah, I assume. The man who gets swallowed by a great fish, vomited. That's the image that rings true to me from my time in Sunday school. Vomited out onto dry land where he then goes and preaches to Nineveh, and they're saved. It's a fantastical story, like fantasy stuff. Uh, Great sea storms, great sea creatures magical gourds that grow up and provide shade for the reluctant prophet. Now, if you're like me, uh, and like most modern readers, we come to those things with big questions, actually wondering if it even happened. Is this a true story? And so we open up the book of Jonah, and we're asking questions of historicity. Is this historical? Or we're asking scientific questions. Is it possible? for a man to live in the belly of a fish for three days? And all those are interesting questions that we've got to give ample time to looking at next week and the week after. But that's not the way the Bible presents the story of Jonah. We've just read these first three verses, and I'm sure you've picked up on it. It presents the story of Jonah as it does all other prophetic narrative, whether it's stories of Uh, Nathan or Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, whoever you want to look at, Jonah stands among them as a typical prophet. And it comes to reason that in the first chapter, as Jonah calls him to the prophetic, as God calls Jonah to the prophetic task, he does so in the typical way. We see Jonah's commission. And the book just sort of jumps right into it. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. That's not boilerplate standard stuff. That is a declaration and a commissioning formula that's found over a hundred times throughout the scriptures. Actually, 114 times. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. And it shows us that this man stands as a human messenger, a recipient of the unveiling of God's truth. God's word comes to the prophet and says, hey, you've got to go do such and such a thing and say such and such a thing. And the prophet normally does it. In fact, Prophecy was a typical way that God communicated with his people. Though we have beautiful Bibles today, nicely bound in rich leather, that didn't descend from heaven as a finished book. Right? God had to speak through people. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1 that no prophecy is an invention of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is how it worked. A man somewhere would receive a revelation from God. The word of the Lord came to him. And he would stand up on God's behalf as a messenger to proclaim God's truth. This is the way prophecy worked, and Jonah stands as a typical prophet. The office of prophet was established by God. and First through Moses, God led his people out of Egypt. And then through Moses, he gave them instructions on how to detect and assess potential prophets. Uh, Turn in your Bible with me to Deuteronomy 18. I want you to see this. Because this is God's test for a true prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 18. And if you don't want to turn there, at least write it down so you can think about it this afternoon. Deuteronomy 18, 18. The book of Deuteronomy is a collection of five sermons that Moses preached to the people of Israel as they waited to enter into the promised land. And he gave them the law again. Deuteronomy means the second law. 
And it was uh, the law given for the first time to the new generation. Their parents had passed away in the wilderness, and now God, through Moses, gave his people the instructions they needed to live in the land and receive his blessing. And this is what he said about prophecy. In Deuteronomy 18, 18, he said, I'll raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, well, then how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that's the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. This is the typical prophet, a man called by God, set apart to receive divine communication and then to relay that communication to God's people on God's behalf. It has the full force of authority. If the prophet says it, God says it, and the people are bound to obey it. Prophets are, like the can opener, one-trick ponies. The essence of their existence was to communicate the truth or message that God revealed to them. To the extent that they deviated from that, they were a, not a, they were a false prophet who did not deserve the time of day, and that stands true today. People claim they know what's going to happen in the future. When it turns out, don't buy their books. Don't listen to them on YouTube. Turn off the TikTok. They're false prophets. They're not speaking from God. So Jonah is presented, though, as one of these prophets. Here comes the word of the Lord, just like God said he was going to do in Deuteronomy 18. And we're the readers here, and we're like, we know this story. We've seen this play out before. And that's the way God's people would have first read Jonah's book. Just like for us, we hear the phrase, once upon a time, and immediately know that we're about to hear a fairy tale or a bedtime story, or the younger generations here a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. We know we're going to hear a science fiction movie about Jedis. Right? They hear... The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and they say, got it. This is a prophet. This is a man who deserves our attention. And doubly so when it came to Jonah. The only other time Jonah's mentioned in the Old Testament is in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14 and verses 23 to 25. And I'll just read this to you. It says in 2 Kings 14, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-hefer. So here we have Jonah, the typical prophet, receiving from God the word of the Lord to communicate to his people. And Jonah knows the drill. The people know the drill. Jonah's been there, done that, received communication from God, and spoken it on his behalf. But then here's the kicker. The typical prophet who received the typical word from God responds atypically. After all, Jonah's assignment wasn't to bring God's word to a room of hungry Christians, Bibles open, page turning left and right, because they can't wait to hear what God has to say to them. He wasn't even coming to a group of students hoping to learn some new theological insight into the nature and character of God. Instead, 
the word that came to Jonah was a call and commission to go preach to a city of godless pagans. Any of y'all want to sign up for that? There's cities all over the world that need a prophet. Y'all go do it. All right, but no, he was called to preach to a city of godless pagans. I mean, ancient Nineveh was a world power, sat perfectly on the Tigris River as a capital city of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And these Assyrians were world-renowned for a particular brand of barbaric violence, things that would make your skin crawl and stomach turn if I told you right now. It's despicable, terrible, sadistic violence and inhumane acts that were totally meant to intimidate their enemies, of which Israel was one, and assure them that all resistance against Assyria's power was futile. They ground people into the ground and made them pay, and they kept the world in fear. Because of that, one commentator that I've been working on this week, uh, his name's Leslie Allen, says that for ancient Israelites like Jonah, Nineveh stood for the essence of human self-exaltation and anti-God power. The essence of human self-exaltation and anti-God power. Jonah's commission meant that he was called to go preach among the most hostile crowd of people you could imagine. It'd be like sending a missionary today to go stand on a corner in Las Vegas, preach the gospel, the dangers of gambling or something. You think he's going to get a fair hearing or is he going to get mocked off the corner? Like going to Amsterdam or Pyongyang, Beijing, or the modern city that sits across the river from the ancient Nineveh, Mosul, Iraq. You want to go preach the gospel in Mosul? It's, ISIS has been driven out, but I don't know that you're going to get a fair hearing. But that's where Jonah was called to go. Go to Nineveh, cry out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So while Jonah's commission seems like the standard call of a prophet you might read somewhere else in the Old Testament, it was anything but. And we're not quite ready for the response. And we get through verses 1 and 2, the commission to Jonah's response in verse 3. And it's the same word. God says, arise, go to Nineveh. And our Bible says, Jonah did arise, but he didn't go to Nineveh. He rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Maybe you have events like this one in your life. Like 20 years down the line, you look back at one terrible decision you made and how it altered the course of your whole life. And in fact, the, the book of Jonah hinges on this one act of disobedience in verse 3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He disobeyed God. And everything else that follows is a result of this decision. This isn't the way things are supposed to go for the faithful prophet. I mean, he hears a word from God, he stands up and speaks it. That's the way prophecy works, just like the way you pull this out of your drawer to open a can of green beans, and you expect it to do that. That's what it's there for. It's the essence of its existence. But Jonah ran away to this place called Tarshish. Now, geographically speaking, Jonah was called to go east to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. But Tarshish lay in the opposite direction, about as far as you can get, on the coast of what most scholars believe today is western Spain. He got as far away from God's plan for his life as possible. Y'all know what he's talking about, right? You've been there. You've done that. I have. Because of that, I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He says that Tarshish for Jonah represented all that Nineveh was not. Tarshish was the jumping off place of the world. The gates of adventure. Jonah knew the cost of going to Nineveh. And he said, uh-uh. I'm going to paradise, baby. 
And theologically speaking, we know Jonah's plan was destined to fail. It's not possible for any human being to escape the presence of God. Jonah rose, flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Yeah, Jonah, you've made a terrible doctrinal mistake, bro. You know that God made the heavens and the earth. He's going to say that next week in the passage we look at. You know that he fills all things. What are you thinking? You can't get away from God. Surely he knew David's prayer in Psalm 139, which two weeks from now we're going to think about more deeply because the echoes it has with Jonah's visit in the belly of the fish. But Psalm 139, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. But if I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, the pit, behold, you're there too. And if I take the wings of the dawn, and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Yeah, Jonah made a terrible doctrinal mistake. Jonah, you can't run far enough or fast enough to escape God. He's the hound of heaven, and he always gets his man. That's just the way God is. But Jonah's flight toward Tarshish wasn't just an attempt to get away from God. It was what we sometimes talk about baptism, an outward and visible demonstration of an inward reality. T. Desmond Alexander says, By fleeing from the Lord's presence, Jonah announces emphatically his unwillingness to serve God. Jonah didn't need a change in altitude, change in latitude, change in scenery. Jonah wanted to disobey God, and he had to get as far away from him as possible. Because of that, his action is nothing less than open rebellion against God's sovereignty. God says, here's my word, Jonah. Go to Nineveh and preach it. And Jonah says, you're not the boss of me. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to Tarshish, away from your presence. Now, on one level, I kind of sympathize with the guy. It's not hard to understand why he wouldn't want to go to Nineveh. Perhaps his heart was full of fear. He'd heard about these Ninevites. He'd seen the evidence of their barbarism. He knew what was likely to befall him if he went and spoke God's word. He was afraid. And maybe he had some responsibilities in Israel that he had to tend to. Some chores that needed to get done. A family to take care of. Makes you think of the man who said, let me bury my father first to Jesus. Maybe he had some responsibilities that just kept him from feeling comfortable with leaving Israel at that time. Or perhaps his reasoning was sinful, as most scholars think. And Jonah despised the Ninevites and didn't believe they deserved any opportunity to hear God's word or have a chance to repent. But whatever lay behind Jonah's decision to disobey, it's not something you should expect from one called and commissioned by God. And his actions bring us back to the question, what good is a prophet if he won't proclaim the word of the Lord? And so I want to help you think about the significance of Jonah for us. I've got three things that I want you to think about. What good is a prophet who refuses to proclaim the word of the Lord? Well, it's about as good as a can opener that won't open cans or a Christian who refuses to live under the authority of Christ. So uh, the first significance of, uh, for us of Jonah's life is that Jonah reflects back to us our sinful rejection of God's authority. He's like a mirror. And we see Jonah, we see ourselves. Now I've experienced that 
I don't think many Christians have a problem denouncing the Ninevites, whether they're the ancient Ninevites or their modern iteration of Ninevites, the people who are clearly and obviously sinners and going to hell. We know who they are, we can see them, and we're glad to pile on to denounce. They're wicked, they're terrible. Most Christians even can get on board with poking fun at the dopey prophet who refuses to obey God's word. They're like, ha, ah, Jonah, don't you know doctrinal stuff, man? You can't escape God. You're crazy. Uh, we, we pile on the Pharisees. All oh, the Pharisees. If I'd been there, I wouldn't have been one. But then we start to think about ourselves. Which one am I? Well, I'm not a Ninevite. And I don't think I'm a dopey prophet. I must be the good guy in the story. I must be the hero. I must be the one who, if God had called me, you know I would have gone to Nineveh. And I would have shared this story. But the reality is, as I've prepared this text, God's reminded me over and over and over how foolish and disobedient I am and how many times I've tried to avoid and escape God. We don't, of course, punch a ticket to Tarshish, but how many people have neglected to open the Bible because they knew as soon as they did, God was going to nail them in between the eyes. That's how it works. So just as opening cans is the essence of being a can opener and proclaiming God's word is the essence of being a prophet, so, too, being obedient to Christ's commands is the essence of the Christian life. It's a non-negotiable. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. His apostle John elaborates on this point in 1 John 2, which I think has to be, it's becoming one of my favorite passages in the whole New Testament. I think I've probably quoted it a bunch at you over the past six months. But 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6, John says, By this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, and doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we're in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Obedience to Christ is the essence of the Christian life, non-negotiable. Does it offer us any wiggle room? And that means when we willfully reject the commands of Jesus by choosing bitterness and anger over forgiveness and love, we're like Jonah. When we neglect the daily pursuit of God in prayer and meditation, we're like Jonah. When we refuse to open our hearts to the needs and the hurts of those around us, we're like Jonah. When we fail to even so much as try to talk with our families and unbelieving friends about Jesus, we follow in the steps of Jonah. Nobody's spending money to escape God, but we make those daily decisions every day. And so when we see Jonah, as we're going to see Jonah over the next four weeks, I want you to think of him as a mirror reflecting back to us our attitudes towards God and the people around us. He's a spitting image of you. I just want you to know that. And the sooner we get there, the better we'll be. So a Christian who refuses to live in obedience to Christ is like a can opener who doesn't open cans, a prophet who won't proclaim God's word, like salt that loses its savor, like a lamp that's put under a basket. It's a contradiction in terms. It's good for nothing but being thrown out and trampled underfoot. All right, so Jonah reflects back to us our sinful disobedience of God. But number two, Jonah reminds us of God's goodness. Okay, he, he reflects back to us our sin, but he reminds us of God's goodness. And here's what I mean by this. The story of Jonah isn't about Jonah. 
And even when Jonah comes onto the scene in the very first verse, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, say, but God's already at work. God's out there somewhere sending his word to his prophet. Jonah's the part and participant in a larger story. The story of God's desire to save a people from every nation, tribe, and language, from every religious background, from every ethnic and linguistic group on the face of the earth. God wants to save people. Jonah's just a small part of that. And for some odd reason, as God writes his story, he does so with deeply flawed characters. People with warts and blemishes. People like Jonah. I'm calling him the reluctant prophet. He eventually obeys, but he's not happy about it. Like Peter, Jesus' fair-weather friend. You know, I'm, I'm with you, Jesus, all the way. I'll never let that happen to you. And then at the first turn, he's denying him three times. Uh, Peter, the fair-weather friend. Paul, the former persecutor of the church. I mean, everywhere you look in the Bible, God writes his story with broken, messed-up people like me and you. I like the way Philip Carey puts it. He says, Jonah is a comic figure. Almost everything he does is wrong. And yet, the Lord God of Israel does through him everything right. I don't know about you, I, I sometimes reflect on the significance of my life, and maybe you feel like your life is a comedy of errors. One failed start and catastrophe after another. You've attempted to obey God, but you keep coming up short, and if you're honest with yourself, as I have to be with mine, most of the time we give our second best or half-hearted to God. Maybe you know what it's like for Jonah to be a broken person because you see yourself clearly in him. You are like him. You are broken. You are messed up, disobeying God at every turn. But listen, brother or sister, isn't it amazing that God delights in using broken people like Jonah to accomplish his purpose? If God were looking for perfect prophets, he'd have to look an awfully long time. If God were looking for perfect Sunday school teachers who are going to invest in kids, he wouldn't find any here. I love y'all, but just to be honest, none of y'all are perfect. But God is good, isn't he? I mean, if, if God can use Jonah, a guy so dim-witted that when the word of the Lord comes to him, clearly, audibly, Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh, and he runs in the opposite direction, that God continues after him. He keeps pursuing him, and despite Jonah's best efforts, he ends up falling in line. And that's the way God wants to use you. He's seen your false starts. He's seen your half-hearted efforts. And he still loves you just like that. You're not so broken and messed up that God can't do something awesome with your life. That's how good he is. And it's like the old saying. Martin Luther gets attributed to it. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, as well. But it says, God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Your imperfections are not a problem for him. He allows you to do what He calls you to do and supplies you the grace and spirit to do it. So just offer yourself up to the good God who uses messed up people like us. And number three, Jonah first reflects our sin, reminds us of God's goodness. But most importantly, He reveals our need for a Savior. You know, God is totally able to use imperfect people to fulfill His plan, but He does that because there is a perfect person somewhere. That Jonah reveals our need for a Savior. We need somebody who can save us from our pattern of imperfection and from the penalty of our sin that we justly deserve. 
Jonah's going to get thrown into the bottom of the ocean because he wants to die. And God saves him from it. Who's going to save you when you're at your wit's end? When you've got nothing left to give? When false start after false start has convinced you that there's no point? Who's going to save you? The Bible tells us that the same word of the Lord that came to Jonah, son of Amittai, took on flesh and dwelt among us. It says, Jesus, the Son of God, lived the perfect life of disobedience that you and I should have lived and can't, totally powerless to do. And He died a death on the cross that you and I deserve. He's the one who descended into the depths, not to spend three days in the belly of a fish, but to spend three days in the grave. And He did it not as a victim of some powerful oppressor nation, the brutal and sadistic Assyrians or Romans or whoever, but as a willing act of obedience to his father. Paul says in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. I'm sure like Jonah, when the word of the Lord came to him, he was full of fear. He knew what the destination would mean for him. But he looked death in the face and said in the garden, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And it's not theologically sophisticated for me to say this, but I believe with all my heart that when he said that, he knew you. I believe that. That he looked through the, the hourglass of time and he saw you. That he was willing to suffer, to die a brutal crucifixion because he knew what his death would mean. Jonah despised the Assyrians, didn't want to give them a chance to repent, but while you were his enemy, he died for you so that you could. He suffered and died so that you could know the salvation that Jonah should have proclaimed. The salvation that I'm here proclaiming. Because the same God who sent Jonah to Nineveh, sent Jesus to the cross, sent me. Here I am. I'm standing up here with a word from the Lord to you. Now, I know that you're not a Ninevite, and probably your sins are silly compared to theirs. But God still takes them seriously. And Jonah eventually is going to proclaim 40 days, and then Nineveh is overturned and destroyed. And I don't know how long God has determined the bounds of your life. I don't know at what point your clock will run out. But I do know the scriptures say that it's a point of once for man to die and after that comes judgment. And so every last one of us will someday face the Lord and give an account for our life. And did you know that every last one of us is going to have to fess up for our disobedience? That we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. We've been like Jonah, running as fast and as far as we can from the authority and sovereignty of God. We hear his word to us we feel it within us, and yet we say, you're not the boss of me. So today is the day that you ought to reconcile your life of disobedience by the man Jesus who died for you. Come to God. That's the invitation today. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate a remembering meal of Christ's sacrifice that he willingly offered up his body for us. And I'm going to tell you not to partake of it if you don't know Jesus and if you're not living for Him, if you haven't received salvation by His blood. 
But it'd be really terrible of me if I didn't extend you that opportunity to receive salvation before we partake of the meal. So this morning, if that's you, you know, you, you hear me saying, okay, Jonah reflects my sin and I see it. You say, I remember God's goodness and I know it. it reveals my need for a Savior and I know I need a Savior. I'd love to talk with you about it. Mike and the band are going to come in a minute and sing a song and I'm going to be right down here. And if I can introduce you to the salvation that I'm talking about, I'd love to do that. But also know that the majority of us are Christians, those who've already given our life to Christ and have committed to live for Him. And so it's for y'all that I got this parting word. Think about Jonah, a man raised in the church, you might say, acquainted with the ins and outs of God's way in the world, and yet one who, at the drop of a hat, when things got difficult, tough, disorienting, challenging, frightening. He ran. Have you been running? Hit me this week that there was a time in my life when I was, when I had done everything I could do to get away from God. I had been saved and baptized at the age of 14 and decided somewhere along the way that the God thing wasn't working out for me. And so I decided I wanted to be an economist and teach economics in college. And so I remember sitting in my macroeconomic class, second semester of my freshman year at the University of South Alabama. My professor was my advisor. I knew this man well. And he said something that was totally uncontroversial as far as I'm concerned. And yet the word of the Lord came to me. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. And in that moment, I know I, I, know I hadn't punched a ticket and I was in Mobile, Alabama, which is about as close to paradise as you'll get on earth. Not Tarshish. <laughs> but in that moment, my running had caught up with me. I couldn't run anymore. And in that moment, I had to give my life back to Jesus. I had to recommit myself to him. I had to say, Lord, whatever you want to do with my life, I will do. And so I know that it's probably not that dramatic for you today, but I do know that you're here for a reason. And you need to assess your life. Have you been running from God? Or are you living out your essence? Are you living an obedient life, following the commands of Jesus out of love for Him, not to secure your salvation, but because you love Him and He has saved you, and now you're living out this new life that He's given you? Now's a perfect opportunity for you to repent, to turn back to Him, remind yourself of who you are and what you've been called to do. Y'all pray with me.